Hello, how are you? That's good. Good response. And uh, welcome to all you who are joining us over at Central Abbey and East Abbey and Mission. We got all our sites joining us this weekend. Uh, Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. Uh, If you've missed a few weeks, just catch you up. Uh, We are starting a new study. We're actually week five. But if you haven't been around, we're in John chapter two. It's going to take us two years to finish this. We'll break it up with a lot of other mini-series. But 20 weeks this year and 20 weeks next year, and that'll get us through the Gospel of John. So we're in John chapter 2, and you will need to have your Bibles with you. So I want to ask you a question. I'm going to jump to the end and tell you where we're going. I want to leave a question with you as you leave tonight, uh, as you leave this weekend, as you head out, that you would take this thought with you. So will we be Northview? Will we be a church family that proactively and intentionally welcomes the outsider. Now, I worded it that way. We could ask it differently. We could say, are we? That's a different question, an evaluative question. But put it in the future tense as you think about it. Will we be? Will we be a church family that proactively and intentionally welcomes the outsider? And if you think it even further, what would Jesus say if Jesus came and uh, spent a few weeks with us And watched how we interact, not only with one another, but particularly how we interact with the community around us. What would his critique of us be? So that's where we're headed to the end. So to get going, though, I want you to think back to a time in your life where you felt a little bit like a fish out of water. Uh, A little bit uh, out of your comfort zone, maybe you were experiencing something new, something different. You had never done this before. You're a little bit uncomfortable. And as I was thinking through this week, like literally a quick list just came into my mind, probably 10 or 12 things, just boom, 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 just like that. And I'm sure you could write your own list. Uh, I remembered my first airplane ride. I was 15 years old. And it was just a short hop. It was from Miami, Florida to Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. And I remember the exhilaration of the takeoff, right? Going down the runway. And I was not with my family, a group of new friends, but I I felt alone and just, I'm like, is this what a flight feels like? And then the bumpy landing and then every bump in between along the way, like that nervousness. And now it's like old school once you've flown two or three times, right? Uh, I remember well as a probably six or seven-year-old, Uh, attending my first live Major League Baseball game. So my sister and brother-in-law were studying in Chicago. We went to visit them, and they took us to Wrigley Stadium. So the second oldest stadium in all of the U.S., second only to Fenway Park in Boston, and we watched our first live game. And I couldn't tell you who was playing. I couldn't tell you who won, but the memories are still in my mind, the sights and sounds and smells of that day. Uh, The organ, the pipe organ playing throughout the game. The smell of hot dogs. The first ever for a kid, seventh inning stretch. I didn't know they did that. Suddenly, everybody in the stands are up, you know, walking around and stretching their legs. I remember well as a 13 or 14-year-old kid visiting a friend's church that was very different from the church that I had grown up in. It was an Episcopalian church, or we would say Anglican in Canada. And for the first time, walking into this very reverent, very somber atmosphere, there was a lot of kneeling and there was a a lot of standing up and down that I wasn't familiar with. And then most important, at the end of the service, to walk forward and for the very first time in my life, receive communion directly from the vicar and to have a wafer stuck onto my tongue. And then secondly, for the very first time in my life, to taste real wine from a common cup as he wiped it off and onto the next 
and on to the next. I remember as a 16-year-old, my first solo drive on my birthday, got the driver's license, and was free to drive for the very first time in my life on my own in our 1976 baby blue vet. <laughs> Not a Corvette, it's a Chevette, but it was a vet nonetheless. <laughs> Can I make you blush by asking you, do you remember how you felt on your wedding night? That very first freedom as husband and wife? There are so many firsts in our lives. The first car, the first day at college, your first rental apartment. And each one of them presses us a little bit out of our comfort zone, a, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear, and you just got to take the plunge. Lots of times in your life where you just feel like, I don't know if I really fit in around here. It could be the first few weeks or months or maybe even a couple years in a new job and in a new environment, a new staff, and you're like, I'm not sure that I fit onto this team. Maybe it's think back to school days. I have not a clue what all the cliques in high school are called these days. But 10 years ago when I was in high school, <laughs> we had all these groups. We had the jocks and the preps, the stoners. There were the keeners or the brainers. And there were the loners, all the in-groups and the out-groups and wanting to fit in, wanting to belong. I remember so well the first time in Atlantic Canada, sitting at a breakfast table in Halifax, Nova Scotia, when I had this young potential church planner look at me and say, well, you come from away. And I'm like, what did you just say to me? What does that mean, you come from away? It means you're not from here. You don't understand us. You don't belong. I felt very clearly like I didn't belong in that moment. We all have those stories. Most of them for us are minor inconveniences, really. Most of us can't relate to the true desperation of people who are entirely out of control. And we see glimpses of it. We get little pictures of it. This last year, 100,000 refugees from Ukraine and about 30,000 from Afghanistan that have landed here in Canada, fleeing their homeland entirely out of control, having no power over their life anymore, having to leave behind everything they've known, not because they want to leave their homeland, but because they are forced to leave their homeland. How desperate, how powerless, how frightening that must be. So the question is, do we know do we know, do we understand what it is like to be on the outside looking in? Do we know that? So we're turning a corner in John's storyline, John chapter 2. And Jesus' public ministry begins in earnest. And in the next chunk, we are going to read five stories in a row where Jesus interacts with people who might be considered outsiders. And in the first story, today's story, it's Jesus cleansing of the temple or clearing out the temple courts. And we're going to see Jesus in four attitudes. We're going to see Jesus angry. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. We're going to see Jesus elusive. We're going to see Jesus unimpressed. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus' zeal or his passion. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to read about 15, 20 verses here together. Verse 12 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers. So after this is after the wedding at Cana, last weekend's message. He goes home to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the auction, oxen. He poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So three short paragraphs, and we're going to spend most of our time, verses 13 to 17. We're going to do a deep dive into that first paragraph and then just a comment or two on the rest. So chapter 2, verse 12, just one comment. He went home to Capernaum. And it's important to make that comment because that fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. And that's just about all I'm going to say about it. But if you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And as an adult, he moved to Capernaum. Three cities that are named, and each one of them. So if we're doing a topical study on prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus, this would be very, very important because it is one of many, one of several hundred distinct prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Okay, that's enough on verse 12. Our main focus starts in verse 13. The Passover was at hand. The Passover was at hand. So it's tempting to just run ahead to run through verse 13 and 14 and get to the good stuff, verse 15, when Jesus starts weaving together a whip, when he gathers some cords and he, whatever he does, ties them together to make his whip. But we dare not pass over the Passover. We dare not skip past it. John could have just as well have said it was spring and Jesus went to Jerusalem. That would have been just as easy if this was only a time stamp, that it was in the spring. He mentions the Passover for a reason. And so verse 13, I think, is actually a test of our Old Testament knowledge. How much do we know about the Passover? In the simplest of terms, the Passover was this, an annual celebration where the Jewish people remembered their deliverance in Egypt. So if you write in your Bibles, if you want to write in the margin, just write next to that verse, read Exodus. Read Exodus, because that's where the Passover story is told, specifically Exodus chapter 12. So think the movie Prince of Egypt. So some of you grew up with this movie. Most of you will have seen it. It's well worth your time. It's 24 or 5 years old now, but it's, it's a great little flick. It's actually pretty true 
to the Bible story. They take a little bit of artistic license, but generally it's pretty true to the story. So think Prince of Egypt. Uh, think Martin Short and Steve Martin, you know, Hotep and Ahoy. It's worth just watching it just for the humor that those two guys bring. But a series of nine plagues that God pours out on Egypt, revealing his power to Pharaoh and to no avail until finally the tenth and final plague, every firstborn male will die. And God warns Moses in advance. He tells him of this great judgment that he is going to pour out on the nation. And he warns him and he says, here's what you need to do. Take a lamb from your flock, a spotless lamb, and slaughter it and roast it because you are going to have one last meal in this place as captives. And tomorrow you're going to go free. Tomorrow you are going to be set free. So take some of the blood from that slaughtered lamb and paint it on the posts and the lintels of your door and I will pass over. Exodus 13, 3, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then it says there in chapter 12, verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. This day, the Passover, and Memorial Day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. So the Passover, in simplest of terms, was a remembrance of their deliverance. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the annual feast called the Passover. Great, got it, let's move on. But to make sense of this story in particular, I think we've got to drill down a little bit deeper. And so I want to give you three numbers to stick in your head. Seven, three, and three. Just... Let them roll around in your head. We'll talk about them. The seven refers to seven feasts or festivals that the Jewish nation observed. Four of them were in the spring and three of them were in the fall. Seven feasts, four in the spring, three in the fall. We're not going to take time to unpack them. We don't have time. It's not necessary. But if you want the Coles notes, you could just go to Leviticus 23 and you get in one chapter, a description of all of them in one short little chapter. The first three were these in the spring, Passover, then unleavened bread, and then the feast of first fruits. And they literally were stacked one upon another. Bang, 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 all in a row, all within a one week period. These three festivals took place. So for one week in the spring, at the beginning of the year, they would celebrate Passover unleavened bread and the Feast of First Fruits. Then 50 days later, seven weeks plus one, they would celebrate another week, the week of Pentecost, the incoming, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And then in the fall, there were three final events, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, that's a lot. That's seven. All you need to remember for now, all you need to know is this, that the Passover was one of seven holy events every year. It is one of these high feasts and festival times. And every Jewish man, now we'll get to the three, every Jewish man over age 12 was required to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. Seven and three. Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. And then there's an added comment at the end, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, what's interesting is that men over age 12 were required to go to Jerusalem, but it became a family event. 
Most often than not, the entire family would travel together and they would go in family groups. They would travel in caravans. And we are told that Jerusalem would swell from about 50,000 people to about 250,000 people. Five times the population normal would descend on the city for these celebration weeks. Uh, Jesus' family, if you remember back in Luke chapter 2, Uh, Jesus is a 12-year-old. His parents take him to the temple. The comment is made there that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Passover. So they were good God-fearing Jews. Jesus grew up as a little boy making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Did you know that there is a songbook for these pilgrimages? Did you know that? There are literally 15 psalms that are called Songs of Ascent. From Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And they're all short. They're short little choruses so you could easily memorize them. And as you're making your pilgrimage to Jerusalem and as you're on your way home, you're singing these psalms every year and they get embedded in the mind of the Jewish nation. But note that last phrase. Don't appear before the Lord empty-handed. Huh. What does that mean? Well, think it through for a minute. So imagine today, like literally today, that we were told, as Christian people, we're now told this, that starting this year, starting this year, you have to take three weeks off of work, in addition to weekend gatherings, the Sabbath, you're going to take an additional three weeks off for celebration and worship before the Lord. And you have to travel to a specific place in order to accomplish that celebration. Now, if they happen to choose Abbotsford, that would be really convenient. Or anywhere in the Fraser Valley would be very convenient. But what if they did something horrible and chose Manitoba? Uh, What if they said, we're going to meet in the middle, so all of the country can just come right to the middle, and so it's basically just a few miles past Winnipeg is the middle, just past a little community called Deacon's Corner is the middle of Canada. So what if we had to go there? Now that seven-day feast has become a 10 or 12 or 14-day thing because you got to travel out, have the whole feast, and then travel home. Questions are rolling through your mind. How can I afford three weeks off work? And how do I pay for this festival and this celebration? And if you know your Old Testament, you already know the answer. It's the last three. Seven, three, and three. There were seven festivals. There were three pilgrimages, and there was a three-part giving and savings plan in the Old Testament that was called the tithe. Now, let's dig in. Most of you will know this, that the first 10% of everything that a God-fearing Jewish family produced was to be set aside. It was called God's part. 10% belonged to the Lord, and specifically, it went to support the work of the priests and the Levites at the synagogue, the tabernacle, the temple. And why was that? Because the Levites were chosen as a tribe to be set apart to do all the service in the house of the Lord, and when the land was settled, they were not given land. All the other tribes were given land. The Levites didn't get land. They didn't get an inheritance. Their inheritance was to serve the rest of the tribes in the temple. And the rest of the tribes then gave that 10% to support vocational ministry. Numbers 18.21. To the Levites, I gave every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service in the tent of meeting. So just like your offerings today go to support the work of the local church 
and a portion of that goes to pay the salaries of our staff who work in the local church. The same thing in the Old Testament. Now, what most New Testament folks miss in reading the Old Testament law is that there were two additional tithes. Did you know that? There were two more. The third tithe only happened every third year. Every third year, a special offering would be taken, and it was specifically for the widow and for the orphan and for the foreigner and the sojourner among you. So if people are down on their luck, if life has been hard, you as a community should care for them. We actually take an offering like that around Northview. We call it our care fund. Over and above, it's separate from our operating budget. It's a fund, it is a special fund, literally for these kind of needs. For people when they have fallen hard on their luck and they need just a little bit of a leg up. Maybe they need some counseling. Maybe they need help paying some bills. We have a special fund that goes specifically for that. But a third tithe was given to that. The second tithe, however, that second 10% was called the festival tithe. And it is critical to understand our text So let me read a long chunk from Deuteronomy. Now listen carefully. You shall tithe, and every time you hear the word tithe, just think 10%. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from your field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place he will choose to make his name dwell, you shall eat the tithe. Wait a minute. It's God's tithe, and I'm going to eat it? You're right. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, and your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. The second tithe was set apart, as one author said, so that we can party before the Lord. That's literally what it was for. And it goes on. And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Does that not sound like a good time? That you will set aside 10% of your income and go to the place where the Lord sets aside and you will buy everything. What's amazing is this. If God has blessed you so much that you can't carry your tithe, in other words, the abundance of the harvest this year is so great that you can't possibly carry even 10% of it because Jerusalem is a long ways off, then turn it into cash and when you get to Jerusalem, you can buy what you need, buy whatever you want so that you can worship and celebrate before the Lord. That's a good thing. Now, why have I put you through this? That's a good question. I'm sure you're asking it. Why this deep dive into the Old Testament? And it is simply this. That when Jesus walked into the temple and he got ticked off, somebody could have said to him, what's wrong with you, Jesus? We are just doing exactly what the Old Testament law has told us to do. All of these travelers from all around, not only Israel, but from all over the Roman Empire perhaps, have made the long trip and they were told when they got here they could buy whatever they needed and that's all we're doing is we are selling what they needed. Jesus, what is your problem? You see it? It's Old Testament law. They were doing what the law said. So what's the problem? Uh, Commentators suggest three different things. Number one, maybe they were price gouging. 
They were ripping people off because they had a captive audience. They could charge whatever they want. If you've come into Jerusalem and you've got cash to buy some stuff, you can charge whatever the market will bear, right? It's like going to Rogers Arena for some sporting's event and you get charged 15 bucks for a hot dog. What choice do you have? You can't bring in your own food, right? So maybe they were price gouging. Matthew and Luke, when they record this story, they include this phrase, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So that might refer to that idea that they were ripping one another off. And so maybe Jesus was ticked off because Jewish people were ripping off other Jewish people. Maybe that's what he's upset about. Secondly, maybe he's simply just upset about the noise and the ruckus. Like all these sheep, all these oxen, all these goats, these pigeons. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is a place for joyful thanksgiving and for solemn reflection, but I can't even think with all this noise, 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 get out. Maybe that was it. But there is a deeper layer yet. Because what we see under the layer is that they were actually excluding the outsider. They were excluding the outsider. So Mark, all four Gospels record this story. Mark gives the longest version of the quote when he says, Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That last little phrase. Mark's the only one who gives us the full quote. And so like a good biblical detective, you follow the breadcrumbs because you realize Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Where have I heard that line before? And you pull out your concordance, your Bible software, you do a search, and lo and behold, it is Isaiah 56, an entire chapter dedicated to outsiders. Now, I'm going to read a long chunk of it. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And then he concludes by saying, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel... Because that's the context, they're in exile. The promise is God's going to gather all of Israel that is spread around, all the outcasts of Israel. Not only will he gather them, declares the Lord, but I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. See, Isaiah 56 is written entirely toward the outsider. God in this text is God of the outcast, if you will. So what's happening in John chapter 2 as if the outsider is being excluded. You say, well, how so? What do you mean by that? Well, 46 years earlier, and it's referred to in our text, Herod the Great had decided to do a massive expansion of the Temple Mount, repairing the temple, the temple grounds. 
and adding an extensive courtyard and colonnade. So you've got a, a picture on the screen that gives you a little bit of an idea. So the temple itself is right in the middle. And then all of the vast courtyard around it and the colonnades were Herod's great project. And it became a hub of civic activity. It became the cultural center for all of Israel to gather here. And not just for religious events, but they could gather and talk to one another. But during the high festival weeks, it was a very, very important place. And what was temple, what was important about this is that under Old Testament law, only a Jew by birth could actually enter the temple itself. So in other words, all of us listening to this message this weekend, I'm assuming all of us, surely, unless we have some Jewish folks among us, could not enter the temple. We could go into the outer courts. We could see the temple, but if you'll notice on the drawing, and, and, and this is a little bit of a speculation, we know that there were screens put up, there were dividers put up, there was a, a balustrade put up. So if you see close to the temple, those little barriers, that was what was happening. You could only get so close to the temple itself. So the priest could come and stand on the stairs, you could talk to them, you could pray with them, but you could not go up those stairs unless you were of Jewish descent. So just follow along in that story. There were actually keep out signs on that balustrade. Did you know that? It's amazing. Archaeological digs have uncovered some of them. The best preserved one, it has these words on it. No alien may enter within the balustrade, that, that divider there, around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death that will ensure. Welcome to church. <laughs> like, honestly... What this would be in our day is if we invited the whole city to come and we said, but you can only get into the foyers. You can't come into the sanctuary unless you're a member of the church. And we put signs on the door that say, keep out, no farther. You can be out there in the foyer, but don't bother coming inside the sanctuary. And if you do, uh, you might be dead. Welcome to church. So the only access that the Jewish or the Gentile rather worshiper had was to that outer court. And that outer court is now filled with merchants trying to make a profit, and that is why Jesus is ticked off. Because they are excluding those who needed the access more than anybody else. And it's not what they were doing because the law allowed it. It is where they were doing it. Now, I told you it would be a deep dive. Are you, are you okay? Doing okay? Keep it going. All right, great. You guys doing okay over at Mission? I can't hear you, but are you doing okay? I want to make two brief comments on the rest of the passage. So verse 18 to 22, you get Jesus being elusive in his answer to a simple question. By what authority are you doing this? And what sign will you give us? And then he gives this really interesting answer. Well, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. And they're like, how possible? It's taken 46 years of renovation and Herod wasn't even done yet and it's taken that long and you think you're going to rebuild it in three days but John gives us the explanation. This elusive, veiled, prophetic word and they don't get it. But John explains Jesus is talking about a much greater temple. It's the temple of my body and, and what Jesus was saying is that he, Jesus, is the true and better temple. He's the true and better temple. 
The Old Testament structures, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's rebuild of the temple, Herod's massive expansion of the temple, all of those things will be wiped off the face of the planet and it doesn't matter because the living God is going to dwell with his people. It's an Old Testament promise. I will dwell among you. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will live in the midst of you. And if you fast forward to the end of the New Testament, you'll realize in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no temple. At the end of Revelation 21 verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, the new heavens and the new earth, no temple for its temple is the Lord God almighty and the lamb. God himself will dwell with his people. And in the in-between, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is saying, now God, your temple is standing right in front of you. And in the in-between period, from the tearing of that veil in the Holy of Holies until Revelation 21, we, as his people, are now his temple. It's not a place, it's not a building. It's his people, individually and corporately. So individually, Corinthians 16, uh, 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That if you have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ and by Christ into the Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in your life. In your body, the living God lives in you. And therefore it says, therefore honor God in your body. But then earlier it had said, do you not know that you, and this is a plural you, this is all y'all. Do you not know that you, all of you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So when we are gathered as God's people in any gathering, anywhere on the planet, you get together with a group of God's people and there's something unique and mysterious that happens that God manifests his presence among the gathered people of God because the gathered people of God form the temple, and God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. All you all, plural, are that temple. Amen. Are you not glad that we do not have to make a pilgrimage to meet with God? We can meet with him any moment of the day, anywhere on the planet. Verse 22 to 25, the last comment, we see Jesus unimpressed by the crowds. And just a comment on this. We'll get back to this in later texts. But Jesus, so unlike any earthly leader, politician or otherwise, seems to care less about the opinion polls or popularity contests. In fact, he seems to intentionally push away from the praise of man. Uh, there, there's an interesting story, another story in Mark chapter 1, when he's just beginning his ministry. He has just healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And it says, and the entire city gathers around that house. Now, it may have been a small village, but nevertheless, the entire village is gathered around. The crowds are pushing in. The next morning, they can't find Jesus. He's off in some desolate place praying. It says the disciples go searching for him. And when they find him, they're like, Jesus, where did you go? Like the crowds are showing up, Lord. In other words, we got a good thing going here, Lord. The crowds are growing. There were more people this week than last week. They're loving you. Your, your ratings are up in the polls. And you know what Jesus said to them? Let's go somewhere else. Mark 1.38, he literally says to them, let's go somewhere else. Interesting. John 2.24, Jesus would not entrust himself to the fickleness of the human heart. Jesus knew all too well how quickly that very same crowd would and could turn on him. 
Jesus knew that not every so-called believer, just because they had seen a few signs and believed in him, would actually persevere to the end. Jesus knew that the majority of that crowd would just, in a few short years, be crying, crucify, crucify. So by now, somebody's saying, you know what, that's all well and interesting, Mark, but does it have anything to do with our lives? That's a great question. So to draw it to a close, I want to circle back to verse 17. His disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume you. And let me ask you that question that I asked at the start. Will we be a church family that proactively and intentionally welcomes the outsider? You can't read your Bible and get any other conclusion. That the missionary heart of God is an all-encompassing, all-inclusive love for the world. That from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, it starts with Abraham's call, I will bless you, and through you all nations will be blessed, Abraham. It's never for you to keep it to yourself. I'll bless you, and you become a conduit of my blessing to the nations. And at the end, the book of Revelation says, when we finally stand before the throne, that there will be some there from every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every tongue. Is that not amazing? The most multicultural worship service we have ever experienced in our life will be standing around the throne of God in eternity. So God's missionary heart is that no one should be excluded from the invitation to follow Jesus Christ. And so as we look around our gatherings, as we look around our cities, as we look across our nation, we should continually be asking ourselves as followers of Jesus, who is not here yet? Who is not here yet? You see, one of the clearest calls in the New Testament to the church is that we are to be a people given to hospitality. And that word hospitality is a provocative word because it doesn't simply mean to just entertain one another. It doesn't mean to share fellowship with one another as believers. The word hospitality literally means to welcome the stranger. Literally, it means love the stranger. There's an entire industry called the hospitality industry, right? You can get a college degree in hospitality. Hotels, restaurants, pubs, bed and breakfasts, cruise lines, timeshares, a whole industry built around making people what? Feel at home. Feel welcome. Hospitality. And the church is, or it should be, the most diverse and yet hospitable family on the planet. And why is that? It's because of the one thing that we share in common every time we gather and with every Christian around the world, the one thing we share in common. And you say, well, what is that? What does every person inside the church share in common? And it is this, we are all broken people. That's what we share in common. Broken by life, broken by sin, broken by our own hurts and the hurts that others have put on us, and left to ourselves and our own desires and decisions and our own control, we mess up our lives. Do we not? We do. And there's only one who can restore us. So the color of your skin does not matter. Whether you are male or female does not matter. Rich or poor, educated or high school dropout does not matter. Whether you vote conservative, liberal, NDP, or green does not matter. Whether you are 8 years old, 28, 48, or 98 does not matter. 
There's no other place on earth that brings together such a diverse group of people and then says, now, love one another, serve one another, and care for one another. Worship and fellowship and pray together and then head out those doors as a unified force for good in your communities. And that is either a recipe for disaster or it is the most beautiful thing on the planet. I got to ask you, do you love the church? Not the institution, not the building. Do you love the church? It's people. Look around you. Look around you. Do you love the church? Mission Campus, look around you. Look, literally, look around you. Central Abbey, look around you in that room. East Abbey, in that room, look around you at the people. Do you love the church? So let me ask you one more time. Will we be a church family that proactively and intentionally welcomes the outsider? So you've heard us talk a lot about a national BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. We would love to see in our lifetime a church within reach of every Canadian. It's an audacious goal. There's no way we can do it alone. We need some 9,000 new churches across the nation in order to have a, a church in every neighborhood. That's what estimates tell us. But at the local level, we're asking the question as well, would God give us a BHAG for Abbotsford, for Mission, for the Fraser Valley, our own backyard, knowing what we know that the vast majority of this valley no longer has any connection to any local church? Would God allow us in our own backyard, would he allow us to reach even 10% of the people around us? Could we see in our lifetime thousands of people that are currently not connected to any local church, thousands of people who have never clearly heard the gospel? Would God over the next 10, 15 years allow us to welcome thousands of folks that today might call themselves outside the family of God? And if that were to happen, what would have to change to accommodate all these new disciples? What kind of hospitality would we have to offer? What kind of systems and structures would we have to put in place so that we could welcome them? How much would we be driven to pray and to give and to serve? And so I'm going to leave you with just six or seven questions, and then we're done. And they're these questions. Who's not here yet? Who do you know and love who's currently on the outside? Do you remember when you were on the outside? Do you remember what it took to draw you to faith in Christ? What kind of welcome would you give, if it were up to you, to the newest person among us? If we ask you to attend a different time and place or location to make room for the stranger, would you be willing to do it? As we talk about planting more sites and churches and building a bigger building, are you willing to sacrifice some of your time and effort and money? Will we do whatever it takes to reach as many as possible in our lifetime? Why was Jesus so upset? Jesus was upset because the comfortable insiders were excluding the outsiders. Let's pray. Jesus, would you take this text and help us to understand what was going on in your mind? This nation that you so dearly loved, that you chose actually to be a picture of your love for the world, the Jewish nation, Israel. 
and that you told them from the very beginning that you would set them apart as the apple of your eye and that all nations on the earth were going to look at them and they were going to see how abundantly blessed they were and they were going to be drawn by that blessing to see their God and ultimately come to faith in Christ. And Lord, in the same way, the New Testament church is to be that example, a place where people are flourishing in life, in family, in faith, in discipleship, and that the world would actually be able to see our good words, our good deeds, our good lives, the impact, the vibrancy of our lives, and wonder what goes on with those people. I want to know that God that they know. And oh God, I pray that in the months and the years ahead of us, that you would instill in us a deep, deep desire for the people who are not yet here. The people that we know and love. The people we work with and go to school with and live in our neighborhoods. The people we socialize with, play sports with, that have never yet even heard the gospel. Would you give us a deep, deep heart of love for the outsider, that they would never be excluded. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.